Continuing our investigation, we ask, what do we know about the omniscience of God from the biblical revelation that God on a number of occasions is said to have repented or changed his mind concerning things which he had done or had planned to do? We have been inquiring as to the nature and extent of the knowledge of God. The psalmist wrote that God's understanding is beyond measure. And Isaiah said, There is no searching of his understanding. Certain it is that God's knowledge embraces every particle of knowledge that is taking place and embraces many long-range plans and prophecies which he is determined to bring to pass. It is commonly affirmed in theological circles that God not only knows every action taking place in the universe of every sort at the present moment, every thought, every personality, the location of every atom of matter, and the like, but that there is before the divine mind every such distribution of knowledge for the eternal future as well as the present and the eternal past. In other words, that no movement of any sort, even down to the minutest detail, has ever been added to the knowledge of God. This is indeed an immensity to burden the divine mind with, and we have a right to expect an extensive biblical proof of such a dogma before we are required to believe it. The burden of proof certainly rests with the affirmative. If we are to believe it, it must be proved by and large from the Bible. It must have overwhelming evidence in its favor. It will not do to say that philosophical theorizing says so. We have seen that from early times the church has been encumbered by theological speculation, as men have endeavored to pry into and systematize the mysteries of the divine being. The question is, what does the Word of God say? What is the overall probability of truth from the Bible? We have seen that this concept of the so-called infinitude of God proves too much. If no particle of knowledge has ever been added to the divine mind, then when did God make any decisions? Do not decisions involve new events with new consequences and new facts coming into existence? If there have been no accessions to God's stock of knowledge, then there have been no decisions of his will either no new thoughts, no new reactions, all an eternal fate. To believe this, we would certainly need to have an abundance of evidence. And who does actually believe it in practical life? I have heard a certain prominent evangelist violate this concept, which he doubtless has been taught and theoretically believes a dozen times in my somewhat limited hearing. When invitations to repent have been given and to embrace Christ and be saved, it is frequently remarked 
that God is waiting to write the names of those responding in the book of life, which the New Testament speaks of. Now if God knows from eternity past the name of every soul who ever shall be saved, there can be no additions to the book of life, since such names always have been there, and there never was a time when they were not. This freezes over the pathos of the tender appeal of the blessed gospel. Are we required by the Bible to believe this? To the word and to the testimony, let us see. The word repent and its derivatives is used to describe the actions of God some 33 times in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word basically implies difficulty in breathing and properly means to sigh, to pant, to groan, to breathe strongly. Thus it came to signify to be sorry, to grieve, to lament, and when incited by consideration of one's own righteous character, it means to suffer remorse, to regret one's having entered into a certain situation, to wish undone, to pity in a favorable sense, to experience disappointment. It therefore indicates an aroused state of the emotions of the deepest and most penetrating sort. The use of the word in the Old Testament is almost always with reference to God being used less than ten times to refer to man. The common word in calling sinners to repentance is that translated turn or return and makes prominent the idea of a radical change. It is used of God sometimes with the above word repent. When used of man it indicates a radical change in one's attitude towards sin and God. But we see that God is said to have repented of things that had been done. And the notable instance of this is in Genesis 6 and verses 3 and 5 to 7. Here we read about the unspeakable grief that God came to experience as he saw the development of sin. Let us read. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Or we might read this passage more vividly from an interlinear Hebrew rendering as follows. And saw Jehovah that great was the wickedness of man on the earth, and every purpose of the thoughts of his heart was only evil the whole day, and regretted Jehovah that he had made man on the earth, 
and he grieved unto his heart, and said, Jehovah, I will wipe off man whom I have created from upon the face of the ground, from man unto beast, unto creeper, and unto fowl of the heavens, for I regret that I have made them. Here we have in most positive language the dreadful concept that after all the painstaking creation of man and after all the love that God had bestowed upon man, God in his great holy being came to be filled with grief that man had been created when all the tremendous developments of sin were observed. Who can challenge this rendering of this plain scripture? We turn secondly to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 and 11, and also verse 35. This is the instance of Saul having been appointed king of Israel and having turned from his obedience to God into a state of disobedience and rebellion, led God to greatly regret that Saul had been appointed king, and God made the choice to reject him as the king. From the eighth chapter of First Samuel, we learn that God was very reluctant to have a king over his chosen people Israel. He wanted to be their own king. So in verse 5 we read, Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And in verse 19, Nevertheless the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go ye every man unto his city. And so as Saul went on in disobedience after the tremendous start he had, for we read that he had an impressive background, that he was a choice young man and was anointed with the Spirit and was given another heart, yet he disobeyed God's direction. And so the development came in the mind of God, as we read in the verses that have been cited. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he is turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. As Samuel pronounced to Saul the decision of God, Saul tried to plead with Samuel and have another chance at the continuance of his kingship. But we read in verse 35, And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repenteth that he hath made Saul king over Israel. This whole matter of the kingship was very unhappy before God. Hosea quoted God as saying, I gave thee a king in mine anger, 
and took him away in my wrath. In chapter 13 and verse 11. So God was grieved at the developments that came in the life of Saul, and he rejected him as being king in favor of David, who was called a man after his own heart. Who then can challenge the evident meaning of the revelations of the inner working of the being of God? God chose Saul in good faith as having good promise of being a choice king, the best that could be found. And he disappointed God, as is evident from the text. And God, on this disappointment, made choice to dethrone him and call forth David. So we shall continue in our next meditation. Our Heavenly Father, receive thanks for thy precious word that guides us into the inner working of thy great being. Apart from thy word, we would not know these mysteries concerning thy very nature and essence, and how revealing and humbling it is to think that thou hast created man in thy great love and kindness and mercy, and that man has rebelled against thee and brought all this sorrow upon thy great and noble and wonderful and holy heart. And so it has caused thee grief, when man ought to cause thee joy. However, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming to the world, and now the gospel is being preached, and now sinners may be reconciled to God. Now sinners may have forgiveness through repentance and through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. May many do so today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.